0: For just a couple of weeks now. And uh, so if you have a Bible, you can take those and turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. If you don't, no big deal. Uh, Those passages will be on the screen as we continue a series entitled Rooted uh, Study of the Book of Colossians. After a long and distinguished career, uh, Larry King retired. And one of his final programs, he was actually being interviewed uh, by Donald Trump. And one of the questions that was posed to him was this. He said, if you could interview anyone in the world... Who would it be? Larry King has interviewed just about every uh, cultural icon, about every political power that you can imagine. So literally, uh, his program has been kind of a who's who in world history. And so that's a fascinating question to ask this person who's who's held court uh, with so many important and influential people. If you could interview anyone else one more time, who would it be? Here's what he said. He said, if I could interview anyone, he said, anyone. He said, I would interview Jesus. He said, I would interview Jesus and I would ask him if he was truly virgin born, because if that were true, it would for me define all of history. In other words, if I could verify who Jesus was then everything that goes on, all of history would begin to make sense and would alter the course of my personal history is what he was saying. If I could clearly identify who Jesus was that he said that he was. And so, whether we realize it or not this morning, that question of, of who, who is Jesus to us becomes the defining point of our lives and the history of our lives. Well, this morning, if you're here and, and you're not a Christian, and uh, you've probably got some questions about Jesus and how the whole thing fits together, and uh, so I have some good news for you today. Everything that you need to know today to begin a personal relationship with Christ, uh, we're going to cover in this passage of Scripture. And if you're here and you're already a Christ follower, and they used to, I just believe in Jesus, and I was always called that, and so just kind of from growing up, I've just embraced that, but I'm not, I don't know if I could really defend it, then guess what? Everything that you need to know to have a right view of Jesus as a Christian is contained in this passage of Scripture that we're going to walk through. And so I don't, I don't say this lightly, but I do want to say this this morning that this passage of Scripture we're going to walk through this morning may be the single most important passage of Scripture in the entire New Testament because it clearly answers the question, who is Jesus? One commentator said this in describing this passage of Scripture, uh, he said it's probably the most significant uh, Christological passage in the entire Bible. And so if you came to me and said, hey, listen, dude, just give me the facts. No no preacher talk, don't push your denominational stuff. Uh, Just give me the facts on who Jesus is, what he did and why he came and and all those kind of things. This is the passage of Scripture that I would take you to this morning. And so the question becomes, uh, in understanding what it takes to have a relationship, uh, is this an important passage? Or if I have a relationship with Christ, but I want to be able to ground that into the authority of Scripture, is this an incredibly important passage? And the answer to that question is simply this. Yepers, That's, that's two P's if you're taking notes, okay? It's that big of a deal. It's a huge passage of Scripture uh, that we're going to walk through this morning. in Colossians chapter 1, a message entitled, Who is Jesus? Now, if you haven't been with us, let me give you a little background. Uh, Paul is writing to a real church that existed in his time period uh, near Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And uh, there was some doctrinal heresy going on. And there was a group of people who came along, they were called Gnostics. And Gnostics, basically, uh, they taught that, that, that uh, the way to God was, was elusive. And that there were all these different paths, and that really the, the, the way to God was kind of elusive, and we alone, uh, as Gnostics, we have this knowledge, and it really is a, a blending of all these different religions, this kind of this secret path. But they also taught another facet, which was this. They thought that all physical matter was evil. And so God, who is a spirit, you know, that God could never take on flesh, that Christ could never be who he claimed he was, because all physical matter was evil, and so if God took on physical matter, then God became evil, and that was simply impossible. And so they wanted, their answer to who Jesus was was not the answer that Scripture gives, and so Paul has some very clear instructions about that. Paul very clearly identifies how he feels about those positions, and so that's kind of the context of what we're going to drop in on here in Colossians chapter 1, and answering the question... Who is Jesus? Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and all that are on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And so Paul begins to unfold this case and answer the question emphatically about who who is Jesus? I mean, see this version of Jesus? Is he, is he the one that I see on the History Channel? Uh, is, he, is he, you know, this, this group's version of Jesus? Who is Jesus? And so Paul, in building this case and laying this out there, first off, Paul emphatically declares that eternal God. He doesn't leave any bones about Paul. Paul didn't speak between the lines. Paul, Paul didn't leave any room for debate. There was no ambiguity about what, what did Paul feel or what did he believe about this? Paul very clearly said that he is the eternal God. Now, there's some, there's some passages here that are a little confusing. It says, he begins to move through this passage and build this case that Jesus Christ is the eternal God. Uh, he has some phrases here, beginning in verse 15, when he says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now, in our culture, image is, uh, is something that oftentimes is not the real thing, Correct. We talk about people who are image conscious, and we talk about building your image or marketing your image or having a certain image. And so in our culture, the connotation of the word image is this. It's something that I create to make myself look better or to to facilitate my career or whatever the case is, but it may not be the real me. It's something that I'm working, something that I'm manufacturing, and so when people see that image, they have an idea about me, but it may not be the real me. And so in our culture, image can be something totally different. It can be a misrepresentation. And so this is a place in Scripture where it's helpful to to go beyond what the English translation is. In the Greek, the original language of the Greek word, it's the word icon. And for them, icon, what it meant was this. It meant it was the representation or manifestation of the real thing. In other words, Jesus wasn't just a symbol of God. He was so much more than a symbol. It brought with us in their interpretation. It meant that it was the actual presence of an object. And so, you know what that passage is saying in layman's terms? When Paul clearly lays out about who Jesus is, and he says, hey, he is the, he is the image of God. He's saying he's the exact representation. He contains the exact same essence as who God the Father is, the first person of the Trinity. One writer, one commentator said this. He said that Jesus, in this term, became the visible expression. You know, one of the ways the Bible pictures God is this. And there's a lot of, you know, what is God like? And we have all these images of God, and society has created all these images of God. And one of the things the Bible says about God, the Father, is this, is that He dwells in unapproachable light. Now, if I want to have a relationship with God, and I know that He dwells in unapproachable light, then how does that happen? What happens is when he took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ and didn't lose any of his essence, then I can have that relationship. And so Jesus, it says, is the very substance, the essential embodiment of the one who dwells in unapproachable light. So verse 15 literally means that Jesus is the very substance of God the Father. So Paul lays this out clearly. This is all all over the Bible. There's lots of debate about this. I mean, essentially that's what Larry King was asking. Listen, if I could verify the virgin birth and I could verify that the deity of Jesus Christ, that he was who he said he was, and all those things. And so that's a question that all of us at a point in time are wrestling with. And how you answer that defines the course of history for your life. You so this an isolated passage. I mean, is, is it just Paul speaking? Is this, is this idea carried throughout the Bible? Is it a consistent teaching? I couldn't of them. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says this. Jesus is described as the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His nature. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, describing Jesus, says He is the image, the icon, the image of God. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 says this, Being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. One commentary said, As the personal revelation of the living God, Christ is the projection of God on the canvas Of our humanity. And my guess is in this room that that, that one of us, if not all of us, have sat and wondered, what is God really like? And we let Hollywood form our theology and we let our presuppositions form our theology and and we let our own needs form our theology. And some people have this view of God who uh, God's over here and he's angry and he's just looking to squash me and all the mistakes I've made in life. And, And on the other end of that spectrum, some people have this view of God where he's... Uh, not a whole lot different than Santa Claus. He just got a white beard and he laughs and he, you know, baby's on his knee and that kind of stuff, right? So what is God like? If the Bible talks about God being a spirit, we don't have a concept of that. And the Bible talks about God dwelling in unapproachable light, so I can't get close. The Bible says that no man can see God and live, the, the Father. And so what is God like? The answer to that question is this. You ready? He's just like Jesus. He's exactly like Jesus. That's what those verses were saying about. That's what Paul's writing about. He's saying he's the, the image, the icon, the exact representation, the same essence as a father. If God were a man, what, what would you expect him to be like? I'd expect him to be sinless. Would you? Guess what? Jesus was. And the Bible says of Jesus Christ that he was tempted on all points, yet he was without sin. I, I would expect God to be pretty profound, would you not? I would expect God to probably utter some wise statements. It's exactly what Jesus did. As a matter of fact, so much to the point that, that 2,000 years later, we're still studying the teachings of Jesus. I would expect God to do miracles. Exactly what Jesus did. I would expect God to know the future and be able to predict future events. If He was God and He he knew everything, then guess what? You can predict even the future. You have all the prophecies of Jesus that have been fulfilled. Some of them have been literally fulfilled to the day and even the hour. And so the point I'm getting at is this. When he asks the question, what do you think God is like? He's exactly like Jesus was. That everything that we think of God was manifest, and so if God could take on flesh, He would look exactly like Jesus, and He would do the things that Jesus did. And so what is God like? He is just like Jesus. Now here's a little tricky thing that we get hung up on sometimes. For some people, they just can't grasp that. I mean, wasn't Jesus submissive to the Father? I mean, wasn't God telling me what? I mean, didn't Jesus say in the Bible, I only do what my Father tells me to do? And, and so how is it that they can be the same, but one of them is submissive to the other? You know, that question has plagued people throughout history, uh, so much to the point that one of the great heresies in, in church history, not you know, glazed over, I talk about church history, okay? Uh, in church history, there was actually a, a guy named Arian, and he taught this, that, that Jesus could not have been God because he was submissive to the Father, and, and so therefore they can't be the same thing. And so the people got all stirred up and they formed this council of all these people and the religious authorities of the Council of Nicene in three twenty five AD and they, they came out with this statement and they just blew his theology to peace. They said, No, no, no. Jesus is eternal God. And so that settled it once and for all, right? No no one ever questions that again. This idea that Jesus can't be God because he was submissive to the Father is the exact same thing that those who practice Jehovah's Witness. It's the exact same theology they subscribe to. Here's been my experience as a pastor is that whether people are Christians or non-Christians, they think that Jehovah's Witnesses, so, it's a little ways off. They, they can't, they don't know what it is, but they're not exactly sure. So they ask them all the time, hey, what is different? What exactly is different? What does that mean? It's exactly what he's walking through. Now, now, where do they get that theology from? Look at verse 15 again, Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, it says, He's the image of the invisible God, the same essence, the icon. He's the image of the invisible God. And then he says, the firstborn over all creation. Now, here's the question. If Jesus is God and God is eternal, then how can Jesus be the firstborn over creation? Because that doesn't make him eternal, right? He, he didn't exist before he took on flesh, right? Well, that whole phrase, firstborn over creation, those who, who take the view and say, hey, Jesus, he, he wasn't God. He wasn't any of those things. They look at that and they say, no, no, no. So they're talking about he was the firstborn in creation. Now, now I'm not a great Bible scholar. But here's what I know. Nowhere in the Bible does it ever picture Jesus being the firstborn of humanity. It pictures Adam in that over and over, right? And so what is he talking about then? When you search the scripture, this idea of firstborn, it wasn't, it wasn't chronology. What he's describing in the firstborn is this. He's describing the supreme position of that person. He's saying that Jesus is the most supreme one that's ever been born throughout all of human history. Exodus chapter 4, let me give you a couple examples about this. Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, Israel was described as God's firstborn. Now, again, I'm not a great history scholar, but here's what I know. The nation of Israel is not the first group of people on the planet, okay? And so what does it mean? It means that in that firstborn title, it's the supremacy of God's chosen people he's describing. Psalm eighty-nine, twenty-seven. it's a prof- prophetic psalm about Jesus, and it says this. I will also make him firstborn, there's that title again, I will make him firstborn the highest of the kings on the earth. Supremacy. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6, it said, but when he again brings the firstborn, there's that title again, brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels worship him. Supremacy. And so what Paul is describing, the answer to the question of who is Jesus, say, listen, he's the eternal God. He's the supreme one over all of creation. I don't know if you remember this or not, uh, but back in the mid-90s, when I was born, uh, there was this obsession uh, with angels. Do you remember that? Uh, during, during the mid-90s, uh, the sale of angel uh, items, stuff, the animals, and you know, cars, stationery, all those things, reached an all-time high. Uh, there was an obsession with uh, angels. Uh, there was a country song called Angels Among Us. There was a television program called Touched by an Angel. And there was even, uh, I never did see it, but there, uh, supposedly there were even angels in the outfield. I don't know if you, you remember that as well, right? There's a movie about that. And so there's all this obsession. As a matter of fact, to the point, some people even began to, to worship angels or to pray to angels. And so there's become this uh, heightened awareness about angels. And their context, and, and they, they thought, listen, Jesus can't be who he says he is. He's just, he's just a supreme angel. He's just at the total top, right? He's not the eternal God. He's not the supreme over all creation. He's just the best angels, kind of the false teaching he was addressing. Look at verse 16. Verse 16, it says, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth. You know what that consists of in that, that parenthetical phrase? Angels. And so it's saying there that Jesus was involved in the work of creation. He's eternally existed even in the work of creating angels. He said both the visible and the invisible whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. Now, that language there is repeated again uh, elsewhere in the New Testament. And those, those terms there are describing ranks of angels. And so Paul's saying, hey, hey, listen, I know, I know you're excited about angels and you think that Jesus is probably just the supreme angel. Uh, let me just set the record straight. He's the eternal God. He's the supreme creation. As a matter of fact, he alone is worthy of our worship because he created the angels. And so if you ask me to paraphrase verse 16 the most simplest way, here's how I would put it. Angels are need. Jesus is supreme. It's exactly what he's describing there in that passage. So verse 16, he begins to walk through this and build this case that Jesus is the eternal God. And I'm not sure if I'm there yet. Keep reading chapter 1, verse 17. He says, and he is before all things. You know what he's saying there very clearly? He is the eternal God. He is the second person of the Trinity. He he is the one that was spoken of in in the works of creation in Genesis when it said, Hey, let us make man in our plural image. You say, Well, that that may have just been Paul's theology. I, I don't think Jesus was ever that. I mean, Jesus, who walks around saying, Hey, listen, I'm God? Now, if I got up and preached a sermon, the title of the message this morning was, I am God, most of you would run for the hills, and rightfully so. And so Jesus, I mean, did did He really say that kind of thing? Here's what it says in John chapter 17, verse 5. Jesus is speaking, and here's what He says. And now, O Father, glorify Me together with Yourself, now listen to this, with the glory which I had with You before the world was. And see so what Jesus' believed was about Himself is that He existed for all of eternity. The second person of the Trinity. That Jesus is the eternal God by all who ever taught that. And Jesus Christ alone believed that about Himself. Now that's a hard thing to wrap our minds around. We don't exist within the realm of eternity, do we? As humans, we exist within the realm of time and space. And so when we start talking about eternity, future, and eternity, past, well, we, we can't even wrap our minds around that. And so some people, that bothers them. They can't figure that out, and so they just get they get frustrated. What do you mean He's always existed? No one always exists. What do you mean God's eternal? Some people, it frustrates them so much that they just they just push God to the side. So you know what? That doesn't even make sense. And so I'm not even going to believe that. Listen, hear me this morning. Don't let that thought frustrate you. Let that thought motivate you to worship a God that is way bigger than you and everything that you see. Someone described it once this time. They said a finite man could easily put a formula out there and describe God and and figure God out, then that's a God that's too small to be worshipped. That's not even a God. You know what that is? If I can build it and I can fix it and I've got a formula and I can put it on display and I can manage it, that's not a God. You know what that is? That's a science fair project. You can take a God that's that that small and put Him on the table right next to the paper mache volcano that erupts with baking soda and vinegar, which, by the way, is the greatest science experiment ever. Amen? I remember a third grade science fair has nothing to do with the sermon. I just want to share. Third grade science fair, and the kid next to me, he built a solar powered you know, I, I don't know what it was. And he was, oh, he was so stoked. He was so jacked up about it. I mean, his, his, his dad, listen, he was the guy who came in. And it's like, did you build that really? You're eight years old. You're blowing bubbles in your milk. You, you, didn't, build, you didn't build that, dude. And so he brings in this thing. It's like this solar panel. That's mm-hmm. nobody. He's so proud of it. And he sets it up there. He's like, this is awesome. And uh, my buddy comes in just carrying this. Thing. You know what it was? It was, it was plywood with a papier-mâché volcano on the top that they had built. And you put baking soda and vinegar, you know, with the red food coloring. You just, just eruption, right? And so we walk into the science fair. And right there, there's all these people crowding around. I'm like, yeah, people do like that solar thing. Everyone's around the volcano. Eru- <laughs> do it again. <laughs> the kids all the solar panel, just holding up that geeky thing that his dad made, and everyone knows it. <laughs> do it again, right? That has nothing to do with the message. I don't know why I've even shared that. The point is this, is if you can figure it out that easy then that's not the eternal existing God who's existed for all, who dwells in unapproachable life. That's a science fair project to be observed. And so Paul is saying very clear that Jesus is the eternal God, the exact essence. He's the one who existed for all of eternity. Let me tell you, secondly, and quickly, Jesus is, according to this passage, the eternal God, the very essence of God. And secondly, this passage tells us that Jesus is not your co-pilot. You know, I know that's good bumper sticker theology. I understand that. But we like that. Listen, we, we like that version of Jesus, do we not? That he and I are kind of doing this deal together. We're like, Jesus and I are a team. And I'm kind of, I'm, I'm driving, right? But he's over there. I mean, he's my co-pilot. I mean, if I'm going to make a wrong turn, he's like, no, no, no. You're like, Jesus is the eternal GPS. Recalculating, right? And I'm making the turns, but but I don't really like backseat drivers. And so, Jesus, you're over there, and if I make a wrong turn, let me know. But other than that, you just sit there quietly. That's like a version of Jesus. It's like the person you rode with in driver's ed. You remember that? And they had brake pedals on their side, too. Do you remember that? And you'd be driving along, and you, you think you're going to pull out, and you're just, did I hit something? Oh, no, no, I stopped the car. You're going to have an accident. No, I wasn't. Yes, you were. Take off again, just you know, try to hit the gas. They're on the brakes. I try to get one put in my wife's car, but it's expensive. I just, It's expensive. And we like that. Listen, I want to steer the thing. But Jesus, if I'm going to pull out into the, in the traffic and, and get into a mess here, please put the brakes on. Rather than that, just kind of hang out and chill there, right? Just be my co-pilot. So the picture that Paul paints of this, you know, it's the version that we prefer sometimes because we're still calling the shots. I remember a few years ago, this whole idea that Jesus is my co-pilot. Uh, do you remember this? some celebrities, you would see them all the time on on television or on you know, internet stories. And there was a popular T-shirt that was out that said, "Jesus is my homeboy." No, no, no. He's the eternal God. He's not your co-pilot, and he's not your hall boy, and he's not there just to bail you out before you make a wrong turn and put the brakes on to stop you from disaster. Look at verse 18, how the Bible pictures Jesus Christ. In verse 18... It says, he is the head of the body and the church who is the beginning. Now, what that means in practical terms is this. Listen, if you're here and you're a guest this morning, you think, who's running this whole deal? Who, you know, Who's calling the shots here? It, it, it better not be me, because if it does, we're in big trouble. Amen? Yeah, don't you say amen to that. Don't don't say it, right? Is that if I do this thing, I, I'm not some supernatural CEO calling the shot. This isn't a business. This is an organism of those coming together to worship Jesus Christ, of which he alone is the head. And so my, my hope, I hope that no one leaves and goes, oh, that's, that's Brad's church. Or that, oh, Listen, Jesus Christ is the senior pastor at Liberty Heights Church if we do it the right way. And so he's in charge of this whole deal that we're doing this morning. And then it describes him this way. It says he's the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead. But that's kind of weird, isn't it? He's the firstborn over all creation in verse 15. And he's the firstborn over the dead. What, what's that talking about? It's talking about the resurrection. He's talking about that phrase firstborn. Remember, it's not not chronology, it's supremacy. And so he's saying when Jesus was risen from the dead, it was a supreme resurrection. Now, if you look throughout the pages of Scripture in the Old Testament, there were some people that were raised to life. Even Jesus, during his time on earth, he raised some people to life. And so, obviously, he wasn't the first one to be resurrected, but his resurrection was supreme in the eyes of God. And so how do I know that Jesus Christ is good enough? How do I know that Jesus Christ, what he did on the cross, satisfies God's demand for that sin be paid for? Very simple. He rose from the dead. And when he did that, it was God the Father putting his stamp on Jesus and saying, you know what, that's good enough. I'll take it. That's a home run. He's the head of the church. His resurrection was the supreme of all time. And so as a result of that, he's not my co-pilot. He's not my homeboy. The end of verse 18 says this, in all things, he may have the preeminence. Now, that's good theology. That's straight out of the authority of Scripture. And we agree with that from a theological perspective But the question that all of us, myself included, have to wrestle with this morning is, do I agree with that theologically, but does that actually happen in my life Practically. Am I living my life in such a way that Jesus Christ has the preeminence over all things? In other words, when I make decisions, do I ever consult him? The way that I live my life and the choices that I make, do I want to honor him as my motive? The way that I treat my spouse, is it the way the Bible pictures Christ treating the church? The way that I parent my children, does it represent the the integrity and the compassion and the love of Jesus Christ sacrificially? So that's the question. Does our life reflect that theological truth practically? Because if not, then guess what? We're totally content to let Jesus be on the passenger side with his own set of pedals. And Jesus, if you see me get ready to make a wrong turn or pull out into traffic, hit the brakes. But other than that do, no one likes a backseat driver. And so we're interested in Jesus who can make sure we, we go to heaven. Or we're interested in the biblical picture of Jesus Christ, which the Bible says he has the preeminence in all things. And so Jesus is not our co-pilot. And thirdly, most importantly, lastly, Jesus is the bridge between you and God. He's the bridge between you and God. In Colossians chapter one, I told you this is the most important passage in all the scripture about who Jesus is. In verses 15 through 19 answer the question, who is Jesus? What's he saying? He's the image of the invisible God, the very essence. He's the supreme work of creation. He's the one exalted in creation, verse 16. He's the one holding this whole thing together, verse 17. He's above all the angels, verse 16. He's in charge of the church, verse 18. He should have preeminence over everything in our lives, verse 18. And and please the Father that in Him all the fullness of God should dwell, verse 19. So what verses 15 through 19 are saying, that hey, Jesus Christ is pretty unique. He's pretty special. And so it's answering that question of who Jesus is. But verse 20 answers the question about who Jesus is. Verse 20 answers the question of why. We have cattle up on the roof of the church. And so if you hear that, times are tough. Amen. (laughs) That was stupid. All right, verse... uh, verse 20 answers the question of why. Why? Here's why. Verse 20. And by him to reconcile all things to himself. Why? Because there is a barrier between sinful humanity, me included, trust me. There's a barrier between sinful humanity and a holy God. That's why when it says that Jesus needs to reconcile us, reconciliation means removing the barrier. In fact, most marriages, if you look in most marriages, what they cite for reasons of divorce is what? Irreconcilable differences. In other words, there was a relationship barrier that we could not remove. We could not get this deal fixed as hard as we tried. And you know what that verse is saying right there is that when it comes to God and us, that apart from Jesus Christ, there are some irreconcilable differences. The word reconcile in verse 20 means to exchange hostility for friendship. Look at verse 20 again. And by him, to reconcile or exchange hostility between us and God for friendship. And then he goes on and says, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Well, what's the opposite of peace? It's war. So, so he, here's the picture that, that, that Paul is painting here. And I know it's not a but, but but I promise you, I just walked through it. It's an accurate one is that apart from Jesus Christ, you and I stand in hostility before a holy God. That's why we need reconciled. But apart from Jesus Christ, that when we reject Jesus, we're at war with God because that was His gift to humanity to absolve our sins. And so that's why it says that through the cross alone, we can have peace with God. There's been a regrettable teaching uh, in, in evangelical churches, churches like ours, over the past couple of decades about What, what is salvation? I remember asking a guy one time if he'd ever been saved, and he wasn't being smart. Like He said, saved from what? He had no clue what I was talking about. And so many times it's because we've not presented the true gospel in our churches because we don't know that it's that marketable, you know, that we need to be reconciled to God, that we, you know that we're, there's hostility between us and God, that we're at war between God and we reject Christ. And that, that's not incredible. Let's, let's just get honest. Preaching that gospel doesn't put butts in the seats, all right? And so today we hear, come to Jesus and and have a better marriage. Or come to Jesus and he'll solve your economic and emotional problems. But the problem is that none of those statements is the gospel of Jesus Christ. They may be the benefit, they may be the overflow, but they're not the gospel. And so Jesus, let's just get real honest. I mean, if, if, if that's all that it was, if that was the gospel, then Jesus would have never had to die on the cross. As a matter of fact, Jesus would have been a lot more helpful if he would have stayed alive and helped people fix their problems, right? I mean, he could have formed a 12-step group. He could have formed some kind of network. He could have done all these things if he wouldn't have died. And so what's the whole point of this? Listen, here's what, here's what the Bible does not say, that Jesus came to save people from the lack of purpose or lack of happiness or the demands of a stress-filled life. That's not the gospel. The true gospel, the Bible says this, is that Jesus Christ came to deliver sinful humanity. When you talk about save, save from what? Save from the wrath of God. For rejecting Jesus Christ. And I know that's not popular. I know that's not marketable. But can I tell you this morning, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we need reconciled. That we we need to exchange hostility for friendship. That we need peace with God. Because when we reject Jesus, we're at war with God. And so we talk about God saving us. It's not from saving us of all the troubles of life. Do I think Jesus comforts? Yes. Do I think the Word of God directs? Yes. Do I think Jesus Christ can guide us? Yes. But the reason God saves us is not from all those things in life we don't like. Because then we become the focus, not, not Jesus. But what God saves us from in the personal work of Christ, He saves us from the wrath of God when we reject Jesus Christ and His work on the cross. That is the Gospel. You say, I don't really care for, care for that. I kind of like the Jesus helped me fix my problems gospel. Can I just share with you this morning that you shouldn't care at all what I think. That, that, that my opinions have no authority whatsoever. And the only thing that I say that matters is when my nose is in the word of God. Because that alone is where the authority comes from. And so let me read to you what, what, the, Bible, what the Bible presents as the true gospel in Romans chapter 5. Here's what it says, God's words. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more, having now been justified. That's a legal term, means a new standing before God. Having been justified, how? By being a good person? No, no, no. Justified by his blood, we shall be saved. Now, now here it is. Saved from what? We're talking about getting saved, encouraging you to get saved. You know, people have gotten saved. People tell you you should get saved. Saved from what? I mean, I like my life, right? It's pretty happy. Here's what it says in the word of God, that we shall be saved by his blood from the wrath of God through him. We were reconciled. There's that word again. We were reconciled to God. How? Through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved. How? By our good works? No. By his life. And I know that's not the gospel that's incredibly attractive. But here's the promise. It is the gospel of the Word of God. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is the gospel that a hundred years from now will produce peace with God in your life. And can I tell you this morning that a hundred years from now, the only thing that matters in every person's life in this room, it's not your title, it's not your paycheck, it's not even what you did for a living, it's not where you lived, it's not what your house looked like. The only thing that matters a hundred years from now from every person in this room is do I have peace with God? Do I have peace with God? And you say, well, I think so. I'm, I'm a good person. How good do you have to be? I don't know. But well, who decides who's good? I don't know. What if I'm pretty good and God, I get to heaven and God says, uh-uh? That doesn't sound loving, does it? And you say, well, it's not loving that the only way to get to heaven is through Jesus Christ. Listen, nothing could be fairer. Everyone's welcome. Everyone comes in the same way. It's good enough. The sacrifice was good enough for everyone all around the world. Nothing could be fairer. Here's the conclusion there's a continuum in this room of who we think Jesus is. And once I had a continuum, I don't even think Jesus never existed. I had a guy say that to me one time. I said, There's more documentation of the life of Jesus than any other figure who's ever lived. That's like saying Abraham Lincoln never lived. And then some people move over and say, well, I wouldn't say that. I think he was an effective leader. I mean, if, if listen, leadership's influencing people, Jesus has certainly influenced people. And so I think Jesus was an effective leader. Some people would go over and say, you know what, I think he was a great teacher. Not only did he motivate people, the content was good stuff. And some people would say, well, I think he was a moral example. He taught it and he lived it. It wasn't God, but he taught it and he lived it and he influenced people. And so I would say it's a moral example. Listen, the Bible only paints one picture of Jesus Christ. And that is the eternal God in the flesh. John 14, on Jesus' own words, how he felt about himself. He who has seen me has seen the Father. And to the question of who is Jesus, there's only one of three answers. He's either a liar. And listen, you get up and say you're God and you're not, then you're a liar. You're not a moral example. You're not a good teacher. You're a liar. He's either a liar or he's a lunatic you get up and make claims like that, and it's, you're nuts, right? He's either a liar, he's either a lunatic, or he's the Lord over all creation. And can I tell you this morning that based on the authority of the Word of God, he is the right answer. The only option is this board, he is the eternal God who deserves the preeminence in all things who came to save sinful humanity from the wrath of God. So that's who Jesus is according to this passage. No questions about it. Walk through it verse by verse. No questions about who the Bible paints Jesus is. Here's the only question that remains this morning. Is whether or not you'll accept him as Lord. Whether or not you'll accept him as Lord. So I want to give you the chance to do that. Let me invite you just to bow your heads this morning.